quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Eleni Jokas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. And here's what you need to know. Trade truth. President Trump arrives in Japan ahead of a pivotal G20 summit as the Chinese put their concessions on the table. Bad news for Boeing as more flaws found on the MAX 737 ahead, of course, of it returning to air. And Democrats divided. We're live in Miami as candidates try and break away from the pack. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. move and it's a really important day on the G20 front. That's when the meeting kicks off in Osaka, Japan and trade truce ordeal. I guess that is the big question and that of course is the discussion here and around the world ahead of a very pivotal meeting between President Trump and President Xi. Are they going to be able to compromise and come to a decision? That is going to affect markets throughout the day here in New York. Let's check in to see how the futures are faring at the moment in pre-market trading. We're seeing a slight uh, positive open for the U.S. stocks. Many news headlines we need to focus on. Upcoming talks, of course, uh, under the spotlight. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Chinese are set to present a list of preconditions for ending the trade war, which includes lifting the U.S. export ban on Chinese tech giant Huawei. The Journal also says China is demanding that the U.S. lift all the tariffs it has slapped on China thus far. President Trump said on the record yesterday that he's ready to impose additional tariffs on China if he's not satisfied by what takes place this weekend. So the stakes are pretty high. That said, U.S. officials tell CNN that they're hoping for some kind of interim trade truce that would delay further tariffs. And they are hoping both sides will agree to a timeline for new talks. So in short, with so many dynamics playing out right now, there's also a lot of uncertainty and that could mean subdued markets as we head closer to the end of the week. And of course, it is also the last trading week of the second quarter as well. We've also had some economic data out of the US. Uh, first quarter GDP coming in pretty strong at 3.1%. Now it is expected second quarter GDP is not going to hit the same levels, that it's going to go down to around 2%. And that of course being uh, impacted by the trade negotiations with China, the trade war issues that we're seeing. And this, of course, is going to be a very important piece of economic data that is going to be taken into consideration as the Fed uh, is considering rate cuts going forward. So it's now time to get into the drivers. And we need to start with the G20. That is going to be a really big thing everyone is focusing on over the next couple of days. Uh, President Trump arriving in Japan. He also arrives with a whirlwind of many news headlines. We've got Nick uh, Robertson standing by for us in Osaka. Nick, we've heard from the Chinese reports saying that they want various conditions before they even perhaps agree to a truce or a deal. What is the likelihood of the U.S. compromising? 
There seems to be a compromise of sorts in the air already. At least that's what U.S. officials are telling CNN, officials that have knowledge of the conversations that have gone on with the trade teams uh, that are dealing with China on this issue in the recent week or so. One of those conditions does seem to be that for President Xi to have this meeting with President Trump, he wanted guarantees that President Trump wasn't about to slap additional tariffs on those additional $300 billion worth of trade with China. Um, so that was an important precondition, it seems. The Wall Street Journal is obviously reporting other conditions. But the way that the way that CNN understands it at the moment is this, that the expectation would be, and again, anyone that we're talking to who's commenting about this says, really, at the end of the day, it does come down to President Trump. No one knows what he, what he will do when he gets into that room with President Xi. But the expectation would be that there would be a formula somewhat similar, if you will, to the last G20, Buenos Aires, in Argentina. And that formula would be um, that by agreeing not to slap on more tariffs, um, whatever the extent of the sort of time frame for that may be, and in Argentina, the United States said it was three months, China didn't put a, didn't put a length on it, um, and it lasted about five months until May. Then, of course, the United States uptips tariffs on those 250 billion worth of goods 25%. But the expectation now would be um, that if you get this agreement not to increase the tariff, not to put tariffs on these $300 billion worth of goods, then yeah, I mean, you can restart the talks more in earnest, if you will. That's where, it, that's where we yeah. seem to be. And it's interesting because President Trump says he is ready to impose 25% on $300 billion, which is interesting because we know that they're trying to get some kind of resolution. At the same time, we know that the deal was almost complete in May, and we're just constantly moving backwards. We're taking a step forward and taking five steps back. And, and the question is, you know, how much uh, confidence do we have in the meeting that will occur on Saturday? And, and I guess just how much do they actually want to see this this happening because at the end of the day they're also trying to assert their power and change the power dynamics that China has been able to achieve over the last decade or so and the growing strength of that economy. Look, on the face of it, if you trust what the Wall Street Journal is saying, that China is turning the tables on President Trump. It's President Trump that's been making the demands until now. Now China, President Xi Jinping has raised the stakes saying, you know, um, you know stop uh, your campaign against Huawei. Allow them to trade goods. Uh, and this is impacting their sales, not just in the United States, but potentially across the rest of the world. Stop this campaign. So that Ch China is turning the tables. Why does Xi Jinping think he, that he can do that? Is it because President Trump is going into an election cycle? Is it because he feels he'd be weakened there? Is it because he feels that at this G20 summit, President Trump is going to hear from other leaders who are concerned about, uh, you, you know, about a, a global recession? If there was a global recession, that would be terrible for President Trump's re-election prospects. Is that the gamble here that President Xi is working with? We don't know. But what is very clear, um, Xi is now trying to turn the tables on Trump, and clearly he feels he's got some wind in the sails if he's going to do this.
Right, Nick, thank you very much uh, for your reporting. Great to have you on the show. All right, let's turn our attention now to Boeing. We've got more bad news coming through about the company. Another flaw found on the MAX 737. And it sounds very similar to what we heard before. It's the flaw of the software that actually pushes the nose down uh, of the aircraft. And just looking at what's happening on the share price front, Boeing is down around 2% in pre-market trade. We've got Drew Griffin joining us now. You know, Drew, when we look at it from, you know, just a consumer perspective, it looks like the software or this aircraft is fundamentally flawed and it doesn't inspire confidence towards the, the testing or even this, this aircraft returning uh, to air. Is it similar to what we saw previously and, and is this, or is this a completely new flaw that we have to contend with? It is a new flaw, a serious flaw, Eleni, and the Boeing engineers have to go back to square one and try to fix it. Another problem before this plane can be recertified and flying. What happened, according to our sources, is that U.S. government test pilots working in a simulator found a problem with microprocessors or a microprocessor on board the 737 MAX that when it fails, it sends the plane into a downward position much like that MCAS system did involved in the Ethiopian and the Lion Air crash. This is a separate incident, though. And the pilots could not recover within a matter of seconds. Because of that, the FAA says, Boeing, you really need to fix this. Boeing says it understands, it needs to fix this. Put out a little note to us last night saying that the uh, Boeing engineers are working on a software fix which, according to my sources, Eleni, may be premature. They're trying to determine amongst the FAA inspectors whether or not this is just a software fix or whether or not microprocessors in 737 MAXs yeah. will need to be replaced. It is a big issue. It is going to delay again the recertifying yeah. of this plane. Drew, thank you very much for that update. All right, turning our attention now to the Democratic debate, and we saw candidates go head-to-head -head, uh, ahead of the 2020 campaign, each of them trying to stand out in uh, their crowded field. It was a civil debate compared to some of the ones we've seen in the past. I mean, we did see a few shocking comments, uh, and, of course, people did butt their heads on health care and even uh, immigration. At one point, we even saw the candidates start to speak Spanish. Take a listen. I think of it this way. Who is this economy really working for? It's doing great for a thinner and thinner slice at the top. It's doing great for giant drug companies. It's just not doing great for people who are trying to get a prescription filled. You were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking, but let me tell you what, Section 18, Second, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21 and Title 22 already cover if human trafficking. Drug, a known uh, smuggler or drug trafficking. The Taliban was there long before we came in. They yeah, and they were, long yeah, before we exactly. This economy has got to work for everyone. And right now, we know that it isn't. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. Pero si queremos hacer eso, necesitamos incluir cada persona en nuestra democracia. So economy took center stage and many candidates talking about the fact that the U.S. system is actually rigged to help the rich and the powerful. We've got MJ Lee standing by for us. And I guess the big question is here, did we see any viable candidates uh, overnight that could run 
for presidency and, and head up this country. I think all 10 of the candidates who were on stage last night would probably argue, yes, my goal uh, is to try to show that I can take on President Trump uh, come next November. But what was really interesting about last night is that we actually didn't have a lot of candidates uh, invoking President Trump's name. Uh, they didn't go out of their way uh, to uh, criticize the president or go after his policies. Uh, they mentioned him maybe in passing or sort of in an implicit way. And I think that just goes to show uh, that at this point in the campaign, so much of the fight and so much of the race right now are the Democrats trying to uh, distinguish themselves against each other. The field is so big right now. The fact that we have 20 plus candidates is pretty remarkable. And because it is just the summer, a lot of the candidates are just trying to uh, get the voters to get to know them, to try to talk about their policies. And especially, particularly for uh, a forum like last night, the candidates really wanted to have breakout moments. So uh, for some of these lower tier candidates who have had trouble uh, registering in the polls, uh, their singular goal last night was to try to have a moment that would really stick in the minds of voters. And for some of them, they were actually successful in doing that. So, MJ, who were the winners and the losers here? Did anyone really stand out and break through? I think the candidate we were certainly watching very closely was Elizabeth Warren uh, because of her frontrunner status, at least among the 10 that took the stage last night, and because uh, the focus was just going to be a little bit more on her uh, because she was center stage. And it seemed clear that she came out of last night pretty unscathed. Uh, she didn't have any major uh, stumbles. She uh, held pretty steady to her message, and not a lot of the candidates really were taking, uh, making punches at her, right? They weren't really taking her on. And then I think the winners last night were probably folks like uh, Julian Castro. Uh, he is a candidate, the former housing secretary, uh, who has not uh, been successful in trying to, you know, gaining gaining momentum and gaining support from uh, supporters this early on in the stage in the campaign. Uh, and because he was able to really tackle the issue of immigration uh, in such a passionate way, it's clear that that resonated people resonated with people, and it was a moment that I think will. Uh, stick with voters who previous to last night uh, probably didn't know that much about him. Yeah. MJ, thank you for that update. Appreciate it. All right, let's now take a look at the news making headlines around the world. hopefuls are blaming Donald Trump for the death of a father and toddler who drowned at the Mexico-US border, denouncing the president's immigration policies as inhumane. Mr. Trump blames the Democrats for the tragedy. And he's one person... I hate it, and I know it could stop immediately if the Democrats change the law. They have to change the laws. And then that father, who probably was this wonderful guy with his daughter... Things like that wouldn't happen because that journey across that river, that journey across that river is a very dangerous journey. Right, at least one person was killed and several more injured in two suicide bombings in the Tunisian capital Tunis. Uh, the attacker targeted a police patrol in the city center, according to state-run media. An officer died in the blast. Ten minutes later, a second bomb went off near a police station. Now, there are renewed concerns for the health of German Chancellor Angela Merkel after she was seen to be shaking in public for the second time in less than two weeks. Last time it happened, Mrs. Merkel said she was dehydrated. After this latest incident, her spokesman said she's well.
Right, so coming up on First Move, the art of the deal. Donald Trump takes on the world at a gathering of the G20 leaders in Japan and taking tech to new heights in the mountain air of Aspen, Colorado. Mark Zuckerberg airs his thoughts on Facebook and privacy. Don't go anywhere. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Eleni Jokos. Let's take another check of US futures. Still looking like a pretty mixed day. We've got the Dow pointing down and S&P futures looking up a quarter of a percent. Shares of Boeing set to weigh on the Dow uh, today. That's why we're seeing a bit of loss there. Uh, Boeing shares are set to fall around 3% on concerns over a possible new flaw in the 737 MAX computer system. In the meantime, the US and China are staking out their positions before this weekend's trade meeting between President Trump and President Xi. U.S. officials tell CNN that they're hoping to reach some sort of trade truce that would avoid new tariffs and establish a timeline for new talks. Now, the Wall Street Journal, in the meantime, is saying that China will present a list of preconditions that it wants to see before a final trade deal, including the total lifting of the U.S. export ban on Huawei. Joining us now, we've got Peter Ciccini. He's the, the uh, uh, global chief market strategist at Cantor Fitzgerald. Did I say that incorrectly? Cicchini. Cicchini, but you did well. Thank you. You were 95% of the way there. <laughs> it's so good to have you on. Nice, let's nice just start, let's start on uh, the, the uh, trade negotiations. Saturday is going to be really pivotal. And here you have news that China's already put, putting concessions on the table. It's all about whether President Trump wants to compromise on this. To what extent is this going to weigh on sentiment? Because this is been dragging on, many people say, for far too long. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the negotiations are complex. They, they involve not just trade issues, but geopolitical security issues, as we know, cybersecurity issues, intellectual property issues. Um, and, and frankly, it should take some time to negotiate these issues because it is a multifaceted negotiation. So I would be very surprised if we came away with any kind of a, a deal. I think the best we can hope for is an agreement to continue to negotiate, and I think it will drag on for quite some time. But to what extent is that hurting market sentiment, do you think? Because I look at well, that 10-year yield, and you're seeing it you know, hovering around 2% and even breaching that 2% level. Yeah. You're seeing markets doing really well, so you're getting conflicting reports about what people yeah. are really feeling up. Well, I think trade has, to some extent, been responsible for a bit of the market volatility we've seen. But it's really more of an exacerbating factor uh, relative to both growth and market volatility. It's, it's, it's our view uh, at Canner that we're already beginning to see a slowdown here in the U.S. data. Again, exacerbated by trade, but not caused by it. Same thing in China. The trade is exacerbating their slowdown, but not causing it. So volatility index, that's been really interesting to look at. I mean, over, you know, a since January, we're not looking that bad, but it mm. is increasing and volatility yeah. is on the rise. Yes. It's a good and a bad thing, I guess, because you right. can play the volatility, you know, if yes. you're a better. But at the yes. end of the day, that just also shows a lot of uncertainty. Well, I think it's showing more uncertainty. And what's interesting is, is that the VIX has actually been better bid than one would have expected near market highs. In other words, it didn't into that floor of 10 that we had seen when the markets were in a in a really bullish phase. So I think they're at an inflection. And I'm actually fairly bearish into the second half of the year. And I think, to your point, I think volatility is telling us that investors are more concerned. Okay, so we've got GDP numbers out. First quarter, 3.1% growth. 
know that it's going to slow in the second quarter. That's inevitable. Right. But the question is, how much um, cognizance is the Federal Reserve going to pay to this figure in terms of getting rates lower, which, of course, the market has yeah. already priced in significant rate cuts, already, right. which we haven't received. Well, well, I think that figure is old news, right? I think what the yeah. Fed is going to be looking at is the inflation data, the consumption data. We got a little bit of that this morning as well. Uh, the Fed's going to be looking at in the employment data that we're getting next Friday. And I think the employment data in particular is going to be very important to the Fed. And what they're looking and why they've pivoted to from a from a from hiking mode in December to cutting mode now is because of the global growth deceleration, which is really pretty pronounced. So what are you doing right now in terms of asset class allocation? We've seen so much buying into gold, but we've seen yeah. the S&P looking overheated, many people say, and then of course the Dow flirting with all-time highs last week. Yes. So what is the next move? Well, for just a little bit of context, my narrative for this year was really a tale of two halves. Strong equity markets in the first half off the December lows, rallying up to 2,800-ish. We're obviously north of there right now. But at that level, I feel like equity markets are pretty fully valued and that risk-reward is pretty poor to equities at this so point. So looking expensive right so, now. So yes, yes. The, the, the interesting trade was at one point to be reallocating from equities and into short-duration U.S. Treasuries when they were at about 240. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no yield but, on U.S. Treasuries right, right now. now. That trade is <laughs> not particularly interesting. And so I really think one should be in a, in a wait and see mode, uh, have a little bit more cash on hand than one might normally have, and frankly, so look to think to about hedging. So rush to safety, gold? Uh, you know, gold is tricky. I think gold yeah. has had quite a rally. I think it's a bit overbought here. But, but here's the thing. If you actually look at the amount of negatively yielding securities yeah. globally, it correlates very well to the price of gold. And there are about 13 or 14 trillion dollars worth of negatively yielding securities globally. It's a stunning amount. Fantastic. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Great thank to you. have you on the show. Great much to be appreciate here. Thanks. It. Right. So Bitcoin volatility is back big time. The cryptocurrency surged on Wednesday to close to $14,000. Within minutes, it then plunged by nearly $2,000. It recovered a lot of it uh, over the next few hours, but it's down heavily again, trading well below the $12,000 uh, mark, uh, and right now it's down just over 6%. We've got Paul LaMonica joining us on this wild ride. Bitcoin equals wild rides. I think that's what we've kind of noticed uh, with this cryptocurrency. And the question is, why are we seeing this coming through? I mean, we know that institutional investors have been buying up. We know that Facebook um, has also had an impact, but no one can really explain why people are getting in and out so aggressively. Yeah, I think it is difficult, if not impossible, Lenny, to try and figure out what Bitcoin is doing on any particular day because it has been so volatile. And you are right, there clearly has been more institutional support for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The Facebook Libra news really, I think, in the mind of many crypto investors, validated the cryptocurrency space in general and Bitcoin first and foremost. And then again, also a lot of uh, you know, concerns about interest rates, where they're heading. You know, They're going to be going lower probably in the U.S. and around the world. You've got bond yields falling, negative bond yields in parts of Europe and Japan. That is good, I think, for Bitcoin as well. But Bitcoin is highly speculative and that's not going to change anytime soon and yeah. you have to keep in mind that bitcoin right now even at around 11,000 that's well below the 20,000 or so peak from December 2017 but it's up from 3700 or so yeah. at the beginning of the year so it's just an amazing ride exactly and paul you know when we hear the you know the, the bitcoin bulls talking about where this crypto is going that 
talking about crazy numbers in the next few years, which haven't materialized exactly. So let's just take a look at where you think this is going very quickly. Yeah, I'd, it wouldn't shock me if Bitcoin topped the record high from late 2017 at some point in the next year. But it also wouldn't shock me if it plunged back to 5,000. That's the problem. Bitcoin is still this wild unknown for many big investors and obviously average consumers. So it's really impossible to figure out what's next. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. We're going to a short break right after this, the opening bell. Stay with us. live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell. Let's take a look at how U.S. stocks are faring as we head into the trading session. Remember, it's all about the G20 meeting and Trump and Xi getting the conversation going on Saturday. Dow Jones slightly higher. S&P sitting up three-tenths of a percent. A bit of reticence coming through. It's not surprising, just so much news flow. And remember, tomorrow is going to be a very busy trading session in terms of what we're seeing on the volume front. The small cap index is going to go uh, undergo a rebalancing, so investors are going to be preparing for that. Let's quick, take a quick look to see how the big movers are faring uh, in today's session. And as you can see there, Netflix is up four-tenths of a percent. And we're seeing that the company is talking about the streaming service could see dramatic international growth in the next few years. That's in light of the company's potential to penetrate mobile-only households. Boeing is under pressure, down around 2%. No surprise there as well. The company says that it found a new flaw on its computer system that runs the company's troubled 737 MAX plane. The defect can push the aircraft's nose downwards. It's expected to further delay the jet's return to service. In the meantime, Walgreens up 3.5%. The Dow Components earnings fell by less than expected, boosted by higher prescription drug sales. The CEO called it a recovery after results slumped in the previous quarter. Climate change, Iran, trade. These are just some of the key issues on the G20 agenda. All meant to happen in just over a few days. And uh, at the heart of them stands one man, U.S. President Donald Trump. He touched down in Japan a few hours ago amid a flurry of headlines on U.S.-China trade. We've got Claire Sebastian standing by. And Claire, as the G20 kicks off, business is going to be watching this so closely. And I guess there's expectations that we'll probably, see, hopefully, see some kind of clarity. Yeah, Eleni, businesses have a lot to lose here, not just from the reality uh, of tariffs and potentially new tariffs. We know that they've already started to hit home. They've affected businesses' ability to, to plan. They've even affected earnings in some cases. Uh, uncertainty is just as corrosive as the reality uh, in many cases. And on the, the news out this morning, the, the potential preconditions that uh, are being reported, I think that there might be some uh, hope for that to actually happen among businesses. If, as the Wall Street Journal is reporting, uh, China is demanding a lifting of the ban on Huawei, that might actually be a bit of a relief to the business community because, of course, the worry was that, that, that there might be retaliation targeted at individual U.S. companies. But, Eleni, 
Businesses have a lot to lose, not just because of the prospect of new tariffs. I think it's worth pointing out at this stage, uh, as we head into this crucial meeting, that businesses are also looking at the core mission of the U.S. here, uh, their ability to, to get China to back down on some of its unfair practices, to ease the ability for U.S. companies to operate in China. I spoke to Jacob Parker. Uh, he's the vice president of the U.S.-China Business Council, uh, which represents about 200 American companies doing business in China. This is what he had to say about that. I would say the overarching issue that our companies are concerned about, and that President Trump, I think, is really trying to get at, is this unlevel playing field on which foreign companies operate in the China market. Uh, just by being a Chinese company, your administrative licenses are granted more quickly, your products are approved more quickly, your environmental impact assessments happen in a month and a half instead of a year. Um, so there's advantages from being a Chinese company in the China market that foreign companies, frankly, can't always enjoy. Um, so the tactics, not great, but the objectives are clearly something our companies are supportive of. So businesses tend to support the ends, not the means, though. I think what a lot of businesses would have rather the president had done is to build a coalition with other countries, the likes of the European Union and Japan, uh, and use that kind of power to, to try to, 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 to pressure China to change its ways rather than these unilateral tariffs, don't you? Yeah, and Claire, I mean, I know that a lot of businesses are doing scenario planning, and there's actually a barometer that you've been tracking to show the likelihood of a deal. What are you finding out? Well, I mean, in terms of market expectations, Lenny, we see, of course, with uh, the market this morning, that the, the likelihood of a potential truce uh, is rising. But in terms of an actual deal, Goldman Sachs uh, has a barometer, uh, it calls it, of, of U.S.-China trade tensions. And the likelihood of a deal in mid-April, when we saw that negotiations seemed to be on track, was 80%. By May 24th, after the U.S. Uh, president raised the tariff rate on China, it dropped to 7%. Now it's back up a little bit to 15%. Hopes have been going up a bit. The fact that he walked back those tariffs on Mexico helped a bit, but still only 15%. So I think uh, the markets aren't expecting any major breakthrough, but there certainly is hope that they will restart negotiations and that there is a potential, perhaps, to suspend new tariffs as those negotiations continue. Right, Claire, thank you very much for that update. Right, so BlackBerry wants to boost its business with Beijing. The former phone maker is walking the tightrope between its five eyes, customers, and trade tensions with China. Earlier, I spoke to BlackBerry's chief executive John Chen and he told me that there's room to grow in the software industry. This year we will do about a billion dollars, uh, a little bit over a billion in, um, in, in software and particularly cybersecurity and security software. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room to, 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 to grow in that space. Um, hardware is um, it is, it's reasonably uh, a difficult market, especially like you talk about the supply chain right now because of all the U.S. and, and, and Canada and U.S. And, and, uh, and Mexico and U.S. and China. Uh, we have a lot of discussion on different parts of the supply chain. And I think I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit glad that I, we're not in the hardware today uh, and, uh, because of the, the logistic and the supply chain being uh, part of the problem. Absolutely. Okay, so national security, one of the big things that is playing out when it comes to negotiations between the U.S. and China regarding the, the, the trade negotiations. How do you see this playing out and is it affecting your business in any way? I know you're in the software game, but you've got customers around the world. Yes, uh, good question. Uh, it, it, you know, because of the fact that uh, BlackBerry is a big supplier of uh, mobile 
mobile software and, and, and security software uh, to the 5i country, the, the countries that share intelligence. And most of all, the G20 countries, um, uh, we don't do a lot in China. Part of them is export reasons. Part of them mm-hmm. is, you know, the Chinese government also wanted to have a control of their own security system, which we respect. I would like to do more with the Chinese government, but, but at this point in time, we haven't done that. And so given that, we're not really highly impacted at all. You said earlier that you want to get into China. You would like to work in China. How soon can you pull that off? And can you do it knowing that, you know, your home base is basically, you know, going up against the Chinese in a sense? We've seen retaliation on both sides. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we we will have to work, uh, you know, collaborative uh, with all my major customers and in U.S. and Canada and, and, and in U.K. And, and, you know, Australia and so forth. So, so this is why we haven't been uh, big in China or, or get any traction there. But, you know, I'm hoping in, in somewhere yeah. around the world that we could work on things that are not, that are not maybe as sensitive. Uh, and so this is just something that is a desire more than what we're doing today. For Donald Trump's foreign policy, my next guest warns against underestimating the president. That coming up on First Move. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. So President Donald Trump has frequently left observers baffled by his foreign policy moves. But as he touches down in Japan for a crucial G20 meeting, my next guest says it would be a mistake to underestimate him. Joining me now is Niall Ferguson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and he's also uh, an author. All right, so Niall, thank you so very much uh, for joining us today. You know, the last time you and I spoke, it was in South Africa, and it was just as Donald Trump was elected president. And you basically called a strong economy, strong markets, stimulus within the market as well. And you also were talking about trade wars. I mean, looking on a few years later, surprised you over the last few years in terms of what we've seen from President Trump? Well, I don't think anybody could claim not to be surprised by President Trump. It's uh, really his speciality to surprise commentators. But as you said, my expectations at the outset of the Trump administration have roughly been met. Uh, Those people who predicted a stock market catastrophe on the evening of the election, uh, like Paul Krugman looked pretty foolish by about 11 a.m. on November 9th, uh, 2016. There has been fiscal stimulus, though the Keynesians hate to admit it. That's exactly what's come out of the administration. But I think the really striking feature is that it took uh, President Trump about a year, maybe more than a year, really, to get his his Chinese policy figured out. And the trade war, the use of tariffs as a lever to try to change uh, Beijing's behavior, that only began uh, last year. Uh, so it was a little bit of a delayed action. But I, th- I think it's become the defining feature of Trump's presidency, the thing that future historians will write about, maybe rather more than today's journalists. He has fundamentally altered the direction of U.S. foreign policy, particularly with respect to China, but also, I think, with respect to the Middle East. Most people, and I guess probably the majority of contributors to CNN, tend to emphasize the president's many weaknesses, and I don't dispute those, and I'm not here to defend his personality or his conduct in all kinds of respects. But if you ask the question, is this a substantive presidency in terms of foreign policy outcomes, then I think you have to concede that it has been so far. 
I, 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 it's interesting you say that, but at the end of the day, you're seeing this trade war or the, the trade debate that is ongoing having a detrimental impact on the, the economies that have been stuck in the middle of it all. It's created uncertainty within the emerging market space. Many say it's a power play about just asserting the strength of the U.S. on the international stage. And you've got this delay in negotiations. It's a lot of to and froing. There's no real you know, drive to try and find a resolution. Is this just a power play, do you think, Niall? Power is important, uh, and one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that in many ways it's the most important thing. The alternative strategy, which was really what the Obama administration had uh, ended up with, was just to acquiesce in China's rise to be number one, not only economically, but geopolitically. You can be a free trader, as I am, and still see the rationale of using tariffs to try to rein China in, to try to change its behavior, to stop it engaging uh, in the theft of intellectual property, to try to alter the way in which it essentially breaks World Trade Organization rules with subsidies to state-owned enterprises. Think, I could go on. So I think the key here China? is... Will we be able to change China's ways? I mean, for a very long time, before this trade war, people were saying China is becoming very strong. It's, it, you know, it's intervening in its currency. We don't trust its data. Is this the right way to approach China? Well, it's not. Uh, it's, it seems to me as if there aren't many other ways to get the attention of policymakers in Beijing. And you can't deny that President Trump's achieved that. Here we are on the eve of G20 in Osaka, and it's President Xi who has to come up with proposals to try and restart the trade negotiations. The Chinese are extremely worried that this is going to be another non-event where there really won't be anything agreed. And President Trump is continuing to threaten to raise tariffs on the remaining Chinese imports to the U.S., which haven't yet been tariffed. So there's no question that he's got China's attention, and we know that some of the concessions that have been made by the Chinese negotiators in the course of the past year are meaningful. They're going to significantly increase, for example, their imports from the United States to reduce the bilateral trade deficit. And I think there will be meaningful changes. Uh, there will have to be meaningful changes, not only in terms of intellectual property rights, but also in terms of the Made in yeah. China 2025 strategy. So I think you can't deny that this is a much more effective approach to the China challenge than we've seen from previous administrations, not only the Obama administration, Niall, but the Bush administration before. Very quickly, because we're running out of time, and I have to ask you this question. You had said to me that President Trump has basically captured the, 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 you know, the bad mood um, and the ugly mood of Americans. We're heading up to re-election. We're heading up to the elections. Is he going to get re-elected? What do you think is going to happen? Can Democrats go up a Trump go against a Trump economy and fight against that? the economy is not going to be growing, growing as strongly this time next year as it is now, but I'd be surprised if it was in recession. Having listened to the Democratic contenders, or at least the first half of the Democratic field last night, I was struck by how far they implicitly agreed with Trump's policy in China. There was no criticism of his China policy. There was even some acceptance that his Iran policy might be going in the right direction in the sense that he has uh, walked away from the nuclear deal uh, that Obama negotiated. And uh, there weren't that many uh, people lining up to defend uh, entirely the Obama trade, uh, deal with Iran. So I, I think when I listen to the Democrats, I'm not seeing anybody who's really going to be able to land a punch on Trump if the economy is still growing and if his foreign policy agenda is still delivering. Niall, what a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so very much for joining us. Great to speak to you again. Appreciate your time. Right, Thanks, so, Eleni. Uh, pleading for big tech, high up. Mark Zuckerberg defends Facebook at a festival in Colorado's Rocky Mountains. Don't go anywhere. We'll bring you that news after this. Welcome back.
now. The Facebook CEO is making a plea. Don't break up big tech. Mark Zuckerberg says scale actually helps prevent the spread of misinformation and election uh, interference. He made these comments at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The question that, that I think we have to grapple with is that breaking up these companies wouldn't make any of those problems better. The, the amount that we're investing in safety and security is greater than the whole revenue of our company was earlier this decade when we went public. So it just would not have been possible to do the things that we're doing at a smaller scale. Right. Meanwhile, Facebook has agreed to hand over the identification data of French users suspected of hate speech on its platform to judges. It's reportedly the first country to strike such an agreement. When I headed by, when I joined rather by French Minister for Digital Affairs, Cedric O, oh, he's live for us in Paris. Thank you so much, Minister, for joining us. I just want to touch on what Mark Zuckerberg said there, that it actually is a good thing to keep these big tech plays in place uh, and social media uh, um, being confined to one or two companies as opposed to many different segments. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, actually the fact is there is a question about dismantlement and the question of whether those companies are too big for democracies or too big for economy. I think the question is legitimate and you have to set the question. It's both a question for the US and the EU. What I do agree with Mark Zuckerberg is that the dismantlement won't solve any problem as far as HPC is concerned, as far as privacy is concerned, as far as many subjects. So we have to, to look at after the, the dismantlement and to be able to solve problems that should be solved on the short term. Minister, a world first where Facebook is going to hand over data of users that um, have been found to use hate speech. That is pretty unprecedented. I mean, I know that uh, France has very strict rules and laws regarding hate speech, um, but now you're going to get this information in the hands of judges, but there's so many gray areas here. How are you going to decide who to prosecute? The idea is that, the basic idea is that we want to lower the level of hate speech online. If you want to lower the level, to lower down the level of hate speech online, you shall be able to sue people that are posting such kind of comment. And if you want to be able to sue those people, you have to get the, 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 their idea, their ideas and their IP addresses. So that's why the announcement of Facebook is so important. But what's important is that it's the, in the head of, hand of justice, of the French justice. And I think this is an acknowledgement uh, of the fact that we are handling the issue both of civil rights and freedom and speech, but also of, of protection of our citizens. And we can find the right balance. Do you think this is going to set a precedent worldwide where you will see Facebook or other social media platforms handing over information? to governments, because that comes with the risk. Um, not all governments perhaps have best interests at heart and they might just police users. I think there is a common interest, at least for democracies, between big platforms and governments, is to be able to lower down the level of hate speech. So that's why such cooperation is a good thing and I hope that it will spread and other platforms will cooperate too. There is other question about illiberal, illiberal countries. This is a huge question, but I think this is why Facebook first chose to, to work with the French justice, which has a right balance between civil liberties and protection of its citizens.
Are you, have you already looked at people that you'd like to target in terms of the information that you're going to be getting? Are we going to see news in that regard? And I know that the uh, French Parliament is also working on a new law to actually find social media platforms that don't remove Facebook. And we're talking about 4%, I think, of uh, global revenue. So that is going to be a big deal as well. I think our first mission as a state is to ensure people that they are safe both offline and online. So we have to have uh, an efficient judicial processes and as far as the big platforms are concerned, since there's a huge virality, there is a critical size of a huge amount of, of content that is posted online, there, they should be able to take down content that are harmful on a very short term. So that's why we're working with them. That's why we're ensuring the fact that they will be able to do so. And I think, but I think no country in the world has ever been doing, has ever been able to solve the problem. So this is only the beginning of the work. We still have huge work to do, but I think this is a, a good beginning. Thank you very much, Minister, for your time. Great to have you on the show, live from Paris. Right, here's today's boardroom brief. Shares of German drug maker Bayer are rising. The company revealed plans to tackle multi-billion dollar lawsuits linked to its weed killer. It's facing many claims in the U.S. that it is cancer-causing. Bayer says it hired an outside lawyer to advise its supervisory board, and it set up a committee to help resolve these issues. Ford says it will cut 12,000 jobs in Europe by the end of next year in an attempt to return to profits. The move is part of a wave of cost reductions as the company faces stalling demand. Ford has also ended production at three Russian plants and is closing factories in France and Wales. And Kim Kardashian's new line of body shaping underwear is causing backlash from some Japanese. The celebrity launched her products earlier this week under the name Kimono and is reportedly trying to register at it as a trademark. Uh, the problem is that's the word for a traditional Japanese gown that dates back to the 7th century. All right, thanks so very much for joining us for First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos, and I'll be back tomorrow. Take care. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.